Yes, well, hella black, black at it again. On this episode, we tap in with Melissa Moran and we talk about transformative justice and restorative justice. We also talk about carciality and how that shows up even within our own minds. In addition, we talk about accountability and how accountability does not mean that you are punished. So tap in with this episode right now, episode 81 of Hella Black. You feel me? Episode 81. Episode whoever gives a, I don't know. I don't give a fuck what episode it is. It's episode you gonna get no. this knowledge, nigga. Hella black AKA. episode 81. It's important that we keep we keep track of these, bro. Yeah, we no patron. Patron was like, I don't care what episode it is. Like my favorite part is when y'all <laughs> get confused and keep saying episode, I don't know what it is, type shit. So Hella Black episode <laughs> 81. 81 featuring the great Melissa Marine. Boom, boom, boom. Oh shoot. This is gonna be great. I'm excited for this one. I am, because I feel like I'm about to learn something. Not to say I don't always learn something, but I know with this one, I'm really excited to really, really get a grasp of some of the things that I've been preaching to get a deeper understanding of abolition of RJTJ practices and the work. Yeah, and I feel like I hope this episode can just give, like, can ground you in what RJ is, ground folks in what TJ is, ground folks in what carciality is, and ground folks in what abolition is, right? So we all have a common understanding because I feel like in a lot of times we, we hear these words and I think even myself, I've fallen victim to it, right? We hear these words, think we have an understanding, but don't really dive enough into like what it is, like really studying these, these concepts, concepts, really studying these theories. I know I've, I've made that mistake. So I'm excited for this episode because I feel like we'll, we'll give our listeners like the blueprint of RJ. I've done that many a times. And I think it's, uh, a result of, you know, Twitter and the makeup of that whole platform. And then also the academy to where you hear things and you're so afraid of asking what they mean that you go off and either you either assume what they mean based on the context that they were used or you, you know, yeah, a lot of assumptions are made just because folks are afraid to take, although we preach that we're always learning and unlearning, it's so wild that, you know, having a learning stance is so frowned upon in so many political spaces. People just want to take these things, these words they use, me included sometimes and just use it and not even have a full understanding. I have 1,000% used words the wrong way. Yeah, like, and then I think it is a result of me also being, like, in the academy, too, in some yeah. ways. Like, you just hear all these fucking words and it just, like, comes in your head and you spit it out your mouth. And I'm like, damn, why did I even say that word? You assumed the meaning. It was the wrong word. <laughs> but, you know, we have a very special guest in the building again. Melissa can help us stop using <laughs> words and invoking theories, theories in the wrong ways. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to be back here. Um, and, you know, as a person who narrowly escaped the academy, whoosh, I know what it's like when all of a sudden you're spitting out so many different words when really what you meant to say was, I would like a sandwich, please. Or that thing is delicious. Like, you know, the academy really does teach us that the bigger the word, the more important it is. And um, we, we know that that's not always the case, right? Um, There's always a simpler way to say shit. You don't need to use yeah. the word expeditious or I don't know. Just people be using all these big old words. I'm like, do you even really know what it is, Mr. Professor? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes those big words are sexy, though. I have to admit. I find myself, like, I'll just drop drop one or two of those and people are like, ooh, what was that? Get a little <laughs> There's tingle. a place for it. There's a place for it. You know. <laughs> for sure. 
Well, where would you where would you uh, like to start today? We, we thought it'd be important, you know, to just start with the basis, right? So this this first question is like two parts, and the first part is, can you define RJ T, TJ for us? And then that second half is also like, if you could address how these practices were created in efforts to like divest from white supremacist carceral practices, that would be great too. So we're just gonna have a little thesis today. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so here's the thing, right? Restorative justice really has a long history. Like what we, what we understand as restorative practice, I'll say first, has a really long history in basic group communication. And at the heart of it is really the circle, right? It's not only one of the most practical formations to be in for group communication, but it also happens to be inherently democratic, right? Sitting in a circle promotes horizontalism. So automatically, you know, when we're utilizing that practice, we are where we're seeing and hearing and experiencing each other on more or less the same level, right? Um, and most cultures the world over have integrated the circle into their sort of uh, their ontological ways of being. There goes one of those big words. Darn it. I was really trying not to. <laughs> <laughs> so like using compasses, medicine wheels, um, everywhere, like in every major religion, in every not so major religion, you'll see the circle as a symbol for totality, divinity, um, encompassing elements, et cetera. So it's real deep to say the least, right? Like that, like the, the crux of restorative practice has at it, it's like desire to build relationships and community. And, it, and it's like number one practice is sitting in circle or being in circle, I'll say. But when we get into like the 20th century, the ongoing colonial project, right? What we also call the West, where the term restorative justice actually becomes a thing. Um, we see restorative justice actually have, it has its underpinnings um, and a lot of practitioners and scholars will cite uh, the Maori and New Zealand around, like in the 70s, right? Um, the Maori, Maori folk uh, pressured social services in New Zealand to shift their approach um, with the, I'm um, sorry, what's it called? The Children, Children, Young Persons and Their Families Act around 1989. So th like this, this act essentially codifies, makes, makes law, um, a thing called a family group, family group conference. Um, and that what essentially that means, right? That's a whole lot of, what are you talking about? So let me slow down. Um, so taking a couple of steps back in New Zealand, particularly in the 70s and 80s, you saw a lot of um, criminalization of Maori folks, so indigenous folk in New Zealand um, by the colonial government. Uh, re white government, um, and a lot of kids were being taken out of away from their families, right? So if you had like a little little indigenous kid is acting like a little badass, then social services would come in and be like, "Nah, y'all ain't fit to raise your kid, and we're gonna place this kid somewhere else, right?" Um, and we we have seen this everywhere in the colonial project. It's, right? It's not. <laughs> it's just. This isn't. Uh, isn't, isn't just endemic in New Zealand. This is, this is everywhere. But in this particular case... You sound like Oakland. Um, I mean, <laughs> right? Um, in this particular case, uh, you know, kids, kids are getting taken out of their families or being placed in either other families or in giant, giant institutions. 
Um, and then sometimes they're coming back and, you know, for lack of a better term, they're fucked. Um, and they're disconnected from their culture. They're disconnected from their families. And so folk got together and they were like, this is not right. They also recognized that they didn't have the type of institutional power that they needed to like free their kids. Right. So they, they, they formed like Maori folk formed this like groundswell movement. And they said like, we want to be able to have the, the absolute right. And, and we want to be, uh, we want to have like the right and the dignity to deal with our family problems in our own way. And they're saying like, we recognize that maybe little, little Johnny badass over here broke somebody's window or was acting a fool, but taking this kid out of their family is actually doing damage to the kid and to the family and the community at large. And so they really, they rallied for a very long time to get this family group conference uh, written into law. And, and so, and essentially like, like at the crux of it, it's like, you know, before family group conference, it was like social worker comes in, tells the family what to do, tells them what they got to do, and then makes a decision for the family. In the, in the new context, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's more like uh, the social worker's job is to help round up people, help round up resources, tell them, tell them like what, you know, like, so, hey, like this, this is actually like what will happen um, in terms of like what the law is, right? So like it, essentially the social worker becomes kind of a facilitator and then puts everybody in the same room and then leaves. And that's the social worker's whole entire role, right? And the family sits there with all of the information, all of the resources, any, any safety concerns have already been addressed. Um, and they make decisions for their family and for their kids. And so you begin to see, um, like, right off the bat, tons of kids not being stolen from their families, right? And let me be clear, tons of brown kids, tons of indigenous kids not being taken away from their families anymore. So that's, like, really, like, when, when, when you start kind of studying it um, from the, you know, the books and letters perspective, you really begin to see this shift in the late 80s. Um, and and really, you know, to kind of speak to another part of your question, the heart of that movement and the subsequent legislation is, is about community autonomy and folks having the right and the agency to make decisions on behalf of themselves, right? Yeah. And if we consider the role that social workers within government institutions have played historically, we see that this particular example is inherently anti-carceral and inherently anti-white supremacist. Um, because it's, it's literally trying to take, like take the kids that have been stolen from you, right? Take the lives that have been stolen from you by the white supremacist project. Um, so no, they weren't, you know, like they weren't out there like yelling, like, you know, we are anti-white supremacy, but they were doing that actual work. And so it's from that point that you really start to see more documentation of people. And again, usually within social work and criminal justice settings, attempting to use alternatives to incarceration, alternatives to <clears throat> confinement. Um, and, you know, it, it, and, and it's traditional and it sometimes lacks imagination. So you'll see equivalent reparations, like so-and-so broke a window. So instead of going to jail, so-and-so is going to have to like, fix the window and pay X amount of dollars. Um, sometimes it looks like so-called offenders meeting with so-called victims. And I say so-called because I'm uncomfortable with victim offender language. Um, 
So that's a mouthful, but I, I wanted to add too that in terms of transformative justice, um, like TJ, its roots are really planted firmly in, in restorative justice as, as we kind of see it now. Um, transformative justice goes a little bit further in terms of really uh, working to transform the harm for the better good, right? Uh, restorative justice rest and restorative practices, or sorry, restorative justice does have kind of a cap um, where, you know, again, the, the ultimate point is doing things with folks, is building community, building relationship and repairing harm that's been done. Uh, and yet, there, there's also the, the aspect to it where, um, where we're talking about like restoring people to their places in society and community in, in their functionality. With transformative justice though, you're kind of going a step further, excuse me. And you're saying like, okay, like, so, you know, in, a, in the most ideal world, a restorative process has, trans, has, uh, has happened and then uh, you know, everybody's kind of like so, sort of back to where they were with a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more levity about them. Mm -hmm. And a transformative justice approach is going to take that and say, okay, so we did some of that groundwork. Now, what are we going to do to ensure that that never happens again? Um, or that that happens differently. And so in, in this, in this, in, in, in this case, right, they run parallel to one another like where restorative justice sort of becomes a stepping stone and then runs, you know, the practices, right, of continuing to like be in horizontal communication, continuing to do things with each other as opposed to to each other or not at all. Um, uh, you know, continuing that process of communication, of checking in, of asking important questions like what happened and what were you thinking? Um, those things run concurrently, right? They're not, they're, they're not opposed, um, but they, they sort of uh, complement one another, so to speak. So that was a lot. No, it, it was, <laughs> it was. I was, I had a question around that last piece around RJ, TJ. So they are, they are synonymous at, in a sense, but RJ kind of proceeds TJ in terms of- Yes. Okay. Got it. In terms of yeah. the steps. So you can't have TJ without RJ. Yeah. That's what I'm, that, that's yeah, right. my question. Right. Yet, I think it's, it's, it's important to, it's important to look at that, with that a little bit closely. Um, because it, uh, because of what I was mentioning before in terms of the parallels, right? Mm -hmm. um, the places where they do parallel. Um, we want to be careful to not say that you know, that you can't have, that you can't do transformative justice, that you can't be transformative unless you have already done uh, restorative practices or restorative justice. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I mean? Like, like, so, so they're, I wouldn't necessarily say synonymous with one another. I would say they're complementary. Yeah. Um, and, and that, ideally they work that together. one, yes. Yeah. That okay. ideally, yeah. But you can have TJ without RJ, though. You can. You can. And you and most likely, you know, if you're if if you know, in terms of transformative justice, like where where transformative justice really takes off is again in like and again in the colonial or Western context, really starts to take off in the '90s. 
and it's very um it's very different than um it has it has separate roots than than uh the so-called restorative justice uh that that we that we talk about right now right like transformative justice has at its roots like folks who are literally they're 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 in a lot of a lot of cases like are outcast for for either reasons of uh gender sexuality um by by virtue of being poor by virtue of being disabled or differently abled um and folks who like you know essentially create like their own diy do-it-yourself community um and are also understanding that that there is a lot of that they're that they're dealing with a lot of trauma that everywhere they go they're they're still being confronted with these uh, various types of trauma that just kind of recreate and recreate themselves and so folks at the heart of the transformative justice movement in the 90s were really invested in in going one step beyond what restorative justice in the 90s looked like um right they were like okay that's cool i could sit down with my abuser right um but what but where is that going to bring us where is that going to lead us in the future um it's really right it was like really really scrappy and yeah. so as you see sort of and and i don't mean that in a disrespectful way i mean that in the like like it was shit was real right and so i think if i if if i'm thinking about it um with a little bit more of like a retrospective lens um I would say that in the 90s, restorative justice, while edgy and kind of, <laughs> kind of radical in its, or progressive in its way, transformative justice become, becomes a sort of like radical, bratty younger sister. That's like, um, like, okay, cool, you did all that cool stuff, but we're still here and we wanna move forward. And so if, if you think about it in that context, then transformative justice then starts to inform what restorative justice looks like in the early odds and now yeah does that make that sense? sense yeah 1000 percent. That, that definitely makes sense it's yeah. kind of like you know we can have all the 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 meetings the talkings the the circles but it's like what is that next step to ensure that one you either have truly learned from these conversations that we're having and two to like how do you change your behavior yeah from what has happened mm -hmm. okay. right right it's it's wild like we, we don't want no yeah. go ahead. i'm sorry sorry go ahead, go ahead. no go ahead Oh, I was I was just gonna I was just gonna say you know it's like we we don't we don't want that system of sort of uh, like a what, for lack of a better term right like a banking type system um, and I don't mean that in the Freerian sense but just in 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 the sense of like where everything is a transaction yeah. um, right and transformative justice is really trying to move beyond that transactional piece while really also like establishing like we are trying to build something better in the wake of what we have right now. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's, it's dope and it's important to note that like, although the folks in New Zealand weren't using words like, oh, we're trying to divest from white supremacist practices and empower ourselves at the root of what they work, that's what they were doing, right? Like taking hands, taking power from- Taking power, self-determination, but know? not even necessarily naming it as that. You know, I, I think that's also because I think a lot of times we can get caught up in the language, but forget about the practice and like, it, it, the root of their practice was rest restoration and transformation, it seems like. And also having That's the right. autonomy to, like, I think with so much, with, and we'll, we'll get into it later on, but so much with 
the carceral state is like you get these folks that have no real ties to the community like these folks in New Zealand who weren't the indigenous people who come in and tell you this is what needs to be done to course correct this is what needs to be done to empower your community to heal your community it's like you have make your own community safe you have have no community ties no whatsoever on top of having no community ties you You also created hell of violence you have a history of doing what's (laughs) the least best for our fucking people right right and it's so it's so deep like how that resonates um to to today to here you know um if we were if we were going to look at like a merely you know, at the most basic, like, per, like, so-called progressive values, like, we, we see that all the time. And if we, you know, home in on our, on our communities, all like, throughout the country, leftist communities, um, you know, black radical communities, etc. like, we, we see this all the time, this sort of um, recreation of, 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 state policies of violence and sometimes we just call it something different and and that's you know it's why it's so important to really understand what what the what these terms are what these practices are that's why like i really like to utilize practices more than even justice um but you know it goes heavy it goes deep yeah so it seems like transformative justice is divesting from white supremacy, right? Divesting from carceriality. So can you tell our listeners, like, can you define carceriality for our listeners? And um, what is a carceral state? Yeah. Um, I might actually borrow somebody else's words because I've been super into, uh, there's, so I'm a big nerd. (laughs) And there, you know, there are all kind of, there are all kind of people who are doing important uh, scholarship and activism around this stuff. So I really want to encourage your listeners to, you know, hit that Google function and you can find people talking about it. If reading's not your thing, you can find lots of writings about it if you prefer. Um, but there's this professor uh, and her name is Ruby, Ruby Tapia. And she's, she likes to break it down like this, right? So I'm going to quote her. I did come prepared with a quote today. Um, she says, Yes, the carceral state encompasses the formal institutions and operations and economies of the criminal justice system proper. But it also encompasses logics, ideologies, practices, and structures that invest in tangible and sometimes intangible ways in punitive orientations to difference, to poverty, to struggles, to social justice, and to the crossers of constructed borders of all kinds. And so, in a nutshell, carcerality is not only the practice of locking people up into institutions, right? Not only punishing them um, by, by virtue of like having committed some crime against the state, but that it's also the way that we think and the way that we think in terms of um, punishment, in terms of discipline um and how we think certain people right when she's talking about uh orientations to difference to poverty um to crossers of constructed borders like how we view other people or rather i'll say how the white carceral state views other people um who are not white particularly um as uh 
people who deserve to be punished if they don't, uh, if they don't, or if they can't conform to a type of white supremacist uh, practice and ideology. Um, and there, there I go with those big words again. So, but, but I, I, hopefully that was a little bit clearer. Yeah, no, that that was clear. Um, that was for so clear. I think one thing that came up for me too is like, it's about how we think too. You know, I think people always think carceral state as in the police, as in being locked up, but forget that like we've been dealing with this white supremacist car- carceral propaganda for since we was born. You know, and like how that right. shows up within our own thinking. And even within our own relationships, right? And, I, and and it's oh, so go ahead, go no, ahead. You good, you good, you good, you good. You the guest, so you the guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I like to be in conversation. You know, yeah. I could talk for days. <laughs> I was just gonna say, yeah, like that. Um, you know, this and, and this is a piece that, like, that I really um, I like to focus on if I if when I'm doing workshops around restorative practices um, if I, and, you know, and in my other private consulting, particularly with educators, like this idea around um, the ideas around discipline being synonymous with punishment, the ideas of consequence being synonymous with punishment um, and the idea of justice being synonymous with revenge. Um, we were, we were really raised this way. Any, any of us who were raised in a colonial project were really raised to believe that these, that these are truths. Um, and, and one, it really hinders the imagination when we're, when we're trying to figure out our way out of this carceral world. Um, it, it becomes really hard, right? This is, this is when you start to hear people pose those, those false equivalents questions well if we don't have police what will we do with x y and z well if we don't do this then what about this like um the you know the the reality is that that there is there is more beyond just punishment um negative consequence and containment and it's really it's really our work to see that and in order to see that we have to acknowledge where where that desire it's a deep desire um to to punish other bodies is within ourselves right i i, I think i'm I've, i'm trying to remember i think i mentioned this in the last time that i was a guest here when i'm when i'm thinking about my kid right and all the ways in which i want to be a different parent than my than my parents were and note that i didn't say better um because they they did the best that they could right but to do things differently it means that i have to I have to fix my orientation to how I teach my kid um, and how I help structure her discipline. And what that means is sometimes like if she pops off, you know, back in the day, if you pop off, there might be a real negative consequence to that. Um, In this particular day, I'm going to say, okay, we we have some options. Right. And it's a different, it's a different orientation. It's a really macro example, but um, I think even if, if we bring it, bring it back to, let's say our own communities, right? Cause we have, we have to always start to work here before I'm gonna go out and try to fix, you know, Joe Biden or whoever the fuck I don't care about. But, um, you know, like, like in, we'll say like in our leftist activist, anti-abolitionist or sorry, whoo, 
pro-abolitionist, anti-racist. Uh, <laughs> um, that was a carceral state working on you right there. <laughs> I know. Did you see that? They got right inside my mouth and we're all bloop. <laughs> but, uh, right. So like, you know, while we're working in our communities to, to, to work, work uh, against white supremacy and for abolition, we, um, we have to also check where, where the punishment, the desire for punishment button is. Uh, within us, the desire for revenge button is, and it's fierce. I know for sure. I, you know, uh, I, I, I'm on my Instagram. I haven't been able to like post a lot of content in the last like week or two because I've been real frustrated and, and I know that that frustration, um, can also sometimes leak out as, you know, I, I would like to set fire to every damn thing. Um, no, you know, and no disrespect to all the people who are actually suffering from the entire West Coast being on fire right now. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like feeling, feeling a deep sense of frustration of, uh, uh, just sort of like despondency. It makes, it makes me feel like I want to destroy something, but I don't have anything to, to put in its place. And that's really punishment at its core. Right. It's just like, I'm just going to punish you until you're back in the corner. I'm going to, you know, incarcerate you and put literally put you in a corner. Um, I feel like I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but nah, you 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 definitely on point because the you know the the point that we were driving home on home on is that like folks have to be very conscious of just how warped our minds have been by colonialism. Like I don't think people like whatever you can imagine. Like I I think all three of us consider ourselves like pretty conscious and aware of the ways that we've been sh- shaped by this white supremacist capitalist patriarchal state right but even then it's a thousand times more than we could ever imagine and that has to be at the forefront of our brains as we try to divest from it because if we don't we'll, it will end up either one recreating the same systems in the name of divestment or we'll only end up addressing things on a surface level because that's as far as we've been able to imagine. consciously <laughs> address shit right because like even us as people that are trying to push a pro-abolitionist politic we need to really do an in-depth dive into our understandings of carcerality, right? Our understandings of punishment, right? And being able to, that first step when you want to engage in RJ, TJ, really asking yourself, what is, what am I responding to right now? What am I feeling? What's coming up for me? And that's the reason why I think one of the things that frustrates me around so many of the conversations around RJ, TJ is the lack of nuance that's addressed and the way that it's talked about as if it's just an easy replacement, as it'll just be a, a smooth swap from the carceral state. I believe that I want the carceral state to go today, but folks need to understand as we implement RJTJ practice, this shit is not about to be easy. It's a whole lot of work and a whole lot of healing that has to be done before, as we engage in, not before, right? But as we engage in this shit, it's going to be constant healing and work that has to take place. That's right. That's, that's a thousand percent right. And I think, um, you know, again, I, I think that we always, need to turn the light inward and reflect inward um and and also we we need there needs to be room for mistakes you know one of one of the one of the dopest things about you know again like that the initial transformative justice movement as it's beginning um and you can hear people talk about this or read read uh different folks talk about this is like like lots, there were lots of missteps, um, and there was 
the grace and the humil humility allowed, it allowed folks to make mistakes, um, to take what worked and to continue to, to build and move forward. Um, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not big on the whole conversation around cancel culture. Uh, I feel like it's too, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, the, like there's not, there's, there's like a lot that goes into it. And I don't understand necessarily like why we have to name all, all of these things, all like <laughs> cancel culture or whatever. It's like, I'm, I'm not for just the pure disposal of people because they have bad ideas. Um, and again, this, like, this isn't necessarily supposed to be about me and like what I believe. However, as a restorative justice practitioner, um, I feel like it's really important to, to be able to fuck up. Um, and I feel like it's very important to acknowledge um, different types of harm, um, different types of uh, different trespasses require different um, responses. Um, and I also believe as a restorative justice practitioner that if we start utilizing like some real basic practices to examine our ourselves and our actions and our motivations, um, we will do, a, we'll be doing a lot more proactive pro building work and a lot less um, reactive emergency responsive work, which unfortunately is the bulk of the work that we're, that we find ourselves doing um, because we're, you know, we respond to harm after it's happened. Um, <laughs> and, and again, you know, that idea of being able to, like stop and reassess, take a breath um, or 10 or whatever you need to take what you need, right? In order to, to, to bring yourself back into the fold. If that means like taking steps out, right? If that means like, oh shit, I've been a tornado through the movement in the last, you know, X amount of time and I need to take a breath. Like, it's cool. Take a breath, get out, <laughs> come back. Let's, you know, like, let's be responsible. Let's be accountable. And like, let's, let's continue to, to move through it. But I think that, yeah, what, what you all of that to say that, you know, what the two of you are saying is absolutely right. Like, you know, I want this, I want, I want, I want abolition now. And I also really worry uh, quite frankly about what happens when, you know, like, let's just say in our, in our anti-carceral imagination that, you know, the prisons and jails are opened and the, inmates and prisoners are freed, um, what do they come to? Are they gonna come back to, to our loving arms where we've been out here saying like, fire to the prisons and all this, but like, wait, you just caused all kind of harm, so now I'm just gonna exile you out of the community anyway. Um, this, is not to, this is not to indicate or, or say in any way, shape or form that I believe that inmates and prisoners have all committed harm. I wanna be clear about that. Um, and I think that our community, right, our communities haven't yet addressed, um, haven't, haven't yet addressed, like, like how, how, how is that going to be, right? I mean, how, how are we going to build this anti-carceral world? Yeah, because RJ and TJ is a lot of work. Like, actually addressing harm mm. is a lot of work. And then I feel like the carceral state, all it does you know, in some cases, it'll just, it just locks you up, right? It just locks you up, mm -hmm. throws away the key, 
and it forgets about the problem while the problem still exists. And did anybody actually get justice or what they needed to heal? Maybe some might say they right. did, but excuse me. And I think it's also to that point, Melissa, of you saying like, sometimes we got to step past the the words and the theories that we just preach, you know, like burn the prisons down. It's like, all right, when those folks, again, like what happens when they actually get out though? Like, have you actually thought about that? That there are going to be folks that have caused harm. There are going to be some folks that got locked up and didn't cause no harm and got to, they going to need some healing when they get out. Like have, you, have people actually thought about the ramifications of if we create this world that we actually want? And that's why like revolution has to be like what we said before. It has to be about creation. It just ain't about destruction. Cause if we only focus on, you know, abolish prisons. Yes, abolish prisons. But what are we creating as an alternative? What are the community, you know, systems that we're creating to help people heal? If these same niggas that was advocating for you to be released, you come out and these niggas turn their back on you and not welcome you with opening arms. It's like, well, nigga, I damn near could have stayed in there. <laughs> like, like, shit, at least I, I thought y'all fucked with me. Yeah, I got some food at least. <laughs> I thought y'all <laughs> fucked with me. Right. And honestly, you know, we see that. That, that like that that's that's not no make believe like I just came up with that example out of thin air like I know y'all have seen that and I know that I have seen that where like folks folks will get out and they're like what is there for me here like you know and and that that's not just for folks who have like who who got profile who get you know tons of support when they come out of prison like for every one person that we hear about that like you know, makes it out and had a lot of people rallying around them. There are thousands that come out and are just like, okay, so what next? Yeah. And, and you know, what, what, it, what is going to happen next? Right. Like when you, you know, I mean that, so that, that's like a whole other discussion. I was just about to go there, but I'm not going to go there. Um, I'm not going to talk about how our society treats prisoners right now. Um, cause and ex, ex prisoners, cause we all, we all already know, but, but we also have to acknowledge that we're part of society. Right. Um, and that, and that we're, we're part of, we're, we're part of what happens. We're, or rather we're part of the, the, the social fabric, the social, um, like really like just like the social attitudes that create harm in the first place. Right. And, and to, to sort of come back into this idea uh, around um, employing restorative practices and having like a transformative justice lens in our communities. Like I'm also talking about like in our, not just like activist spaces, but you know, in our organizations, in our schools, um, schools, school, obviously like, you know, people, people can cite all the statistics right now. Like, and it, it, it's kind of sad that like you can hear folks say, talk about, you know, the disproportional punishment of black youth and da, 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 you know, as though it's like just some bullet point that you're going to roll over. Um, but wow, like, like it's very, very hard for people to see when they are part of that bullet point. Right. Um, I used to, I used to do quote behavioral behavioral work in this uh, public school in Southeast in San Francisco for many, many years. And teachers were always, not all of them, but most of them were always really, really offended <laughs> when I would say point blank, like, like, A, this institution is racist and B, like when you are punishing students for acting like 10 year olds or nine year olds or whatever, um, for being curious, for, for breaking rules, you're part of this whole entire system that of, 
of confinement that's essentially going to lead them to prison or jail or, you know, X, Y, or Z place um, and outcast out of society. And like that's how deep, it, deep that shit runs. Like, I feel like if you oh, talk to probably a lot of your teachers, a lot of the teachers would be like, no, you, I'm not a police officer, but was investing yeah. in carciality through their, the ways they punished their students in the classroom. I've been which suspended then led to what? Double digits amounts of times for school, from elementary school. And I just, I'm, before, I got to, before I got to middle school, I think I had been suspended like eight times. Likewise. That's third through fifth grade. I, I myself I got was, my first suspension in third grade. I'm, third through fifth yeah. grade, I was suspended eight times. Bro, I was kicked out of PE. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's real, right? I, I myself was suspended five times in the third grade. Um, like, we're like eight years old. That's kids, nuts. Kids, like that's kids, nuts. Yeah. like yeah. And then you know, and if so, so then it's like, and and, you, and I can hear the arguments already in my head. Well, you know, like what happened and blah blah blah. Like I'm, I'm always down to answer those questions. Here's a cool thing about restorative practices though, right? Is that I'm down to answer that question. Even if it's just little old eight year old me, what happened was, what happened was, right? <laughs> a, restorative, a restorative process requires that everybody answer that question. Not just me, right? Not just the little ass kid that got punished and sent home and you know, then punished again, <laughs> you know, and then came back to school and was that kid that got punished. And so everybody's going to treat me like that kid that got punished. Like, yeah, like I'm sure ton of your listeners know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but that this, that this stuff, it begins super early. Cause and, then you seen as the um, problem child too, like even in like your, your right. school group, like, Oh, he the one who get in trouble. Oh, he the one who uh, can't go to PE. That's she right. who can't do that. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, and that, how, that, how, That's how, right. how that affects people's attitudes and how they treat you. That's right. The, and that's, you know, when Professor Tapia is talking about, like, the various orientations to punishment. Like, that's that right there. You know, it's one of the reasons why I still prefer to work in early childhood education myself, because this stuff, it starts right there. You know, a lot of people love, like, especially like, you know, folks, they just finished teaching school. They just finished social work school. And they're like, I'm going to go work at high school and I'm going to get the youth. And you know what voice I'm using, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Karen. Karen <laughs> I know some niggas you like know, that too. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, cool. Okay. And meanwhile, back over here in, you know, in the, in the early, early, early times, like, all of these attitudes were formed. I, I knew who I was when I was five and I knew who, I, who like how people looked at me when, when I walked into a room when I was five, like I got that, you know, I clocked that and I'm 42 now. So that's a lot of time to carry that shit. Right. Yeah. Um, and imagine a world in which that little, little badass with all the curiosity who likes to talk some shit who maybe doesn't have all the words to explain how she's feeling or whatever. Imagine the world in which that is nurtured with curiosity, where, where you come at somebody as little as five or as old as 45. And you say, you know, I'm seeing some things in you and I want to know more about you rather than, you know what? I'm seeing something fucked up in you and I'm going to punish you. Right. Mm. And that's, it, it, it's such a valuable 
shift in, in thinking and being. Um, and, and again, I think if we're talking about um, destroying white supremacy, I'm all for it. I'm 100% down. And I got white people all over in my life. So I'm like, I'm not even that front, right? But I'm talking about, I want to destroy white supremacy, which means I'm going to get right into the, the things that make white supremacy work. And the number, it's number one function is punishment. The punishment on our bodies, punishment on our land, right? Like climate, climate change is real. Am I right? Like this is like the ways in which like we are, we are just like, punished we're subjects we're just like just subject to punishment all over again and again and again like i want to get to that and i can you know i can't destroy white supremacy if i'm still invested in what white supremacy taught me was valuable or useful and invaluable right if i'm still invested in punishing you know but it's i think it's hard for people to recognize that though like, be like, oh, my, obsess- my my obsession with punishment is directly correlated to this colonial project. You didn't reach that decision by yourself. Like, you didn't just wake up one day and were like, oh, this is what punishment is, and this is why punishment is valued. This is why punishment is valuable. That's right. You were taught that as a result of seeing others punished, you being punished yourself, or you punishing people. You were conditioned right. to be this way. And I think this is, uh, we wanted to ask you around, like, punishment versus accountability and as as they pertain to you know rjtj practices but then also i think having you touch on punishment as it relates to like healing and transformation as well and i don't i guess those are like kind of all intertwined but yeah i guess just like at the basis can we talk punishment versus accountability and how they don't need to be how they i don't know if i don't know if the word is shouldn't be anonymous shouldn't be synonymous so i'm not gonna say that but how they don't need to be synonymous for, mm-hmm. for, for a kind of like, someone doesn't have to be punished there for, for them to be yeah. accountable, right? Yeah. No, oh, absolutely. Like straight up. That, that's the most simple way to put it. That um, accountability is not punishment. Um, and it's, it is important to note, right, that sometimes you're going to feel punished by accountability, right? Like, you know, I, again, I, I bring up this, I bring up my kid as kind of like a loose example Right. Like we, we really don't like, just like seek to punish her. Like when, my, when my kid makes a mistake, um, we, we wreck for accountability and sometimes it drives her nuts and that's just the way it's gotta be for now. Right. Um, but she can sometimes feel punished when she gets called out for doing something she wasn't supposed to do. Right. And I'll, you know, I'll move that over to kind of like just, you know, being human. Um, we can't it, like like uh let me slow down a second i gotta take my own advice for a minute <laughs> one of the components of punishment like when you know you're being punished when you know punishment is is effective and is doing its job is that it creates shame in somebody else and when people are carrying around shame and we know this there's so much documentation around it there's so much oral tradition around it. When people are carrying around shame, it is very hard to let go of. And it's very hard to not act out of shame, right? So it's hard to not act like, um, act like and then mirror, mirror that wound, like shame is a wound. And sometimes, you know, it, I, I know there are going to be people out there who are listening that are like, nah, shame's good. Shame taught me how to be blah, blah, blah. But 
there's other ways I, also. Like I, <laughs> right right and and i wanted to distill it I, I wanted to distill punishment down to to this idea of shame because it it really it, it does add to 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 the this aspect of our culture whereby we dispose of people right somebody has committed some some type of harm and then we um we greet that harm with shame it's a shame that you committed this harm you're shameful because you committed this harm and you're and and this is how we will deal with you because you have brought brought shame essentially right and that's punishment i'm gonna i'm gonna make you feel this shame and and then you're you're either going to do exactly what i say right that's another component of punishment is doing things to somebody um and if you don't do what i say then negative consequence right um and that's punishment that's its function that's its job it's what it does it's you know it's designed to coerce and it's designed for to to implement some form of revenge for a transgression however big or small um accountability is different right accountability can still make you feel like oh shit i feel shame but accountability like like if if you're really being accountable to something you are going to be able to to overcome that shame and come at you know, let's say, for example, um, you know, I committed a harm against Blake and Blake and I go through a process where, you know, where we talk about it, we answer the same questions, we really hear each other's point of view, we agree together on like what the next steps can be. Now, I caused some harm to Blake, so I definitely am going to feel shame and embarrassment. But if I'm, a, if I'm in a process of accountability, Right. And really being accountable, it means that there, that there are other folks around me, that I'm not an island, I'm not isolated. Then I'm, I'm going to be able to overcome that and maybe, maybe be received with some grace as I move with a little bit more humility. Right. Oftentimes, like the harm that we create comes out of a place of not being humble. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about that Jesus type. Like I'm not, I'm not religious in any way, shape, or form, and I don't want to get in, want to get into Jesus Christ and how detrimental Christianity has been to all of us. But but I'm talking about just like the the idea of admitting when you're wrong, admitting that you don't know what you thought you knew, um, and being able having space to do that, right? Um, so that like in a nutshell. That's, that's how I, how I would talk about how I talk about accountability and, uh, versus punishment. Um, and I think, I think it's important to know, right? Like I get why someone that was harmed would want punishment or right? even I, want revenge. I, I would mean, get, that's, I get, that's a feeling that I've wanted before is like, shit, nigga, I want revenge, nigga. That's on, the only way I'm going to feel yeah. better, but. It goes back to that conversation of why do we want this? It's because mo I'm pretty sure it's because we've been conditioned to believe that that's how healing and justice comes. And also so will it punish make you feel better? Range. Yeah. You know if we mean? really do that work, that, that kind of layer of work that we're talking about to have to take a step back and be like, damn, why am I feeling this way? And it's hard to, and I, th I, I know it's a lot to ask of someone that's been harmed to take a step back and do even more work than they've already done to get themselves mm -hmm. in a place to where they can go forward each, each second, each moment, each day. 
Yet, if we're going to say we're, right. we're committed to restorative, transformative justice practices, if we're committed to anti-carceral practices, this is the work that has to be, be done. And it's important that we acknowledge that. If It's important that everyone who's listening to this acknowledges that if you're going to be invoking these practices and claiming to be an abolitionist, you have to have a real understanding of punishment and accountability and how those will affect the ways we implement RJTJ practices. Like period, point blank. And again, that's a lot of fucking work. I get why someone who's like at the end of the day, like, bro, I'm so fucking tired. I just want this nigga to feel what I felt. Like, period. That's I right. get that. I, I get that. And it's pretty carceral. And that's just what yeah. that's just what it is. We have to accept that. So then people have to accept yeah. that as we talk about RJTJ. I think that's right. And I think um I think that's why w- one of the reasons why people excuse me, also get turned off by ideas around, by the idea of restorative practices, restorative justice and transformative justice is like this idea that it takes too long, right? Revenge, <clears throat> revenge can be quick. Punishment can be easy and fast and effective. Yeah, using the police is um, <laughs> Ironic, right? Right. Um, because that's also not the case. <laughs> um, but like this, you know, this idea that you can reach for something that's readily available, right? It's a difference between like microwaving your food and cooking it. Um, and sometimes you want to, you want to reach for the easiest, fastest thing that's going to bring you immediate relief. And, you know, I like to sort of trouble the waters a little bit when we're talking about um, this, because right, like I have definitely, I, you know, I was saying like one of, one of the reasons why I couldn't really create content over the last couple of weeks in my, for my work, right, was that I wasn't, I wasn't feeling the, the spirit of restorative practice or justice. I was feeling like I want to destroy. And, um, and so what that means is that I, ha- I had to actually, like, stop. Um, there was a lot of work that, like, I already was doing, but I had to like, I had to like stop and not try to create more stuff. Um, If you mind me asking, what what made you come to that understanding? That I I needed to to stop? I need to stop. Yeah. Like if you don't mind sharing for our listeners. Yeah. um, So without, without over divulging, um, uh, my family and I are, uh, have have been for a little bit of time grappling with a particular institution state institution and um and for all intents and purposes we're losing and we're you know we're very smart educated blah 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 people um and we have you know we're relatively well resourced in terms of like friends family and information and all like all of the things that we have been uh, working towards and building towards and trying to get done um, have been met with mediocre, <laughs> mediocre responses from a bureaucracy that is just invested in ticking boxes. And, um, and I got to, you know, I frequently get to a place where I'm angry. I want to be really, really clear that, um, that talking, talk, speaking as a restorative practitioner, restorative justice practitioner, it doesn't mean that I walk around with healing crystals doing yoga every day and taking deep breaths. Like it, it, it doesn't fit for me. It's never really been a clear fit for me. Um, and 
and I believe that it's okay to feel rage and anger and sadness. Um, and right. And I also believe in being responsible for my feelings. So, so that means that if I'm going to be angry or enraged or just flat out mad, um, it means like I, I'm not going to come out and make somebody else feel that way um, by, by doing something harmful. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's just like decades of work, <laughs> it's a little mm-hmm. bit of therapy. Um, but, but, um, so, you know, to kind of go back to it, I, you know, we, we've essentially hit kind of a dead end and we're, we're, we're losing this really, this thing that's very important to us. It's like very monumental thing, um, related to our family. And I just was like, what the fuck? Like, there's nothing I could do. I actually, like, I actively just want to burn things down. <laughs> I want to throw rocks through windows. I want to smash things. I just was like, I was feeling so destructive. And so the idea then that I was going to like, you know, cruise over to my Instagram page or, you know, start doing work on this workshop I've been, you know, building up and bring that energy into it. It felt disingenuous and it, it felt wrong for me. Um, and I, I realized that like one night I was like typing into this slide and I was like, Oh, this, like I'm typing garbage right now. And I'm low key, like I'm low key calling out like, you know, various state agencies and da da da. And I'm like, nah, I needed, I need to take a break because what I, what I realized what was really important for me is that I, I knew that I needed to actually take care of and do a little bit of the, the healing that I need to do. Um, and reckoning with this particular situation so that I could come back stronger and more resourced. Um, and, and so I did, so I, I took a little break and not, you know, it wasn't, again, it wasn't like an all over break, but um, I, and I mentioned, I mentioned this and I th- thank you for asking me that question um, and giving me that platform. Um, bec- but it, I mentioned this because, um, like none of this work is going to be quick, um, but we do, we will actually we can get to some of these things more quickly if we're able to recognize um, where like like destructive and punitive um, patterns and behaviors kind of show up for us, right? Um, and and again, for me as a person who was like really feeling put upon and harmed um, that whole idea of like me having to take a step back uh, for even just a little bit of time um, is really rooted in me recognizing that like, (laughs) you know, say, say I was to exact my revenge upon, you know, unsaid government agency. um, Like I might actually feel really good. (laughs) <laughs> right I might feel real good about that and I might feel justified in it. and you know a few thousand people might agree with what I, what I did and I could like I could justify it or whatever um but at the end of the day there's still going to be harm that comes of it and I have to re- I have to reconcile with that and that's why I was saying before I, I kind of trouble the waters a little bit when we talk about um sort of like what what people who are surviving various forms of harm 
um, desire um, and how we as, a, as, as community members support them. Because right? sometimes people desire revenge and that is harmful. And does that mean that like, if I don't support your desire for revenge and I'm not supporting you? Um, I think not. And I think also it's important to acknowledge like when people are hurting, um, right, they're feeling rage, shame, all of those things um, that, yeah, you kind of, you sometimes do want to pass that on uh, to pay it backward as it were. And I think that, um, that as community members, our job is to also help folks um, like reconcile with, uh, with their harm, with their rage um, and use it. Uh, I know I'm getting a little vague here because I'm not talking about anything in particular, um, but I am, you know, I am just kind of thinking about how, how restorative practices and transformative justice really ask us to help hold our communities and help support our communities. Um, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not tools. They're not, they're not readily implementable systems. Um, you know, they're not like, the, there's no common core of transformative justice. Um, but there are these tenets, these ideas that we work through. Yeah, and I appreciate that because I think it's important. I think, not I think, we've said this multiple, multiple times throughout this episode in many different ways. And the point that's being driven home is that RJTJ abolition is not a quick fix. It's a long word. <laughs> it's not a quick fix. It isn't mm. like, okay, this happens and you have, this is your response. It's going right? to different it isn't like every the, time. How the system uses, okay, you do this, then this is the response from the system. It's not like Joe Biden who can just, you know, with the 1994 crime bill, yeah. just create 60 new <laughs> oh offenses for the death penalty, right? It's not that easy. It's not that easy. Oh, but at the, we do have a foundation right. for the work, but the implementation of the practices are going to look different each time. And you should be weary of anybody who's preaching RJTJ as a quick fix. It's not going to be a quick fix. Right. I feel like RJ and TJ recently, especially in this movement where abolition has become kind of, or defund the police has been a, a central topic. A lot of RJ and TJ has been co-opted. And, um, you know, even now we see like the court system using RJ. Um, so schools, what, schools use it, you know, so, mm -hmm. which might not be a bad thing if, you know, the school is really invested in RJ. There's many but, things to show us that they're not. There's yeah. many things to show us that the courts are not invested <laughs> in RJ. TJ. Yeah, for sure the courts, but yeah. So I, I'm just wondering yeah. how, how has RJ been co-opted, you know, by the state and, and what can we do to, to counteract that? Well, so th this is really interesting, right? And it's, um, and it's, it's important to note again, how, you know, in our, like colonial geographic context that actually restorative justice, um, right? Not restorative practices. I want to, I want to just de delineate between the two, but restorative justice actually does have a lot of its roots in, in the system, right? Some of the, some of the earliest documentation of restorative, what's now called restorative justice. Um, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, like you'd find in, um, 
in, in court settings, in uh, social work settings, Department of Children and Family Services settings. Um, and so I, and, and it's, you know, I, I, I definitely agree that, it, that it's problematic, um, but it's also in a way it's like unavoidable. Um, if we want to try to work to disentangle people from the system while we're also building out here, um, I, I think that it's actually, I think it's a good thing to push these gigantic bureaucracies who have everybody's lives in their hands, literally, um, to, to utilize more, um, more, a more restorative framework. Um, now, I think, uh, I think that another way in which this becomes problematic is, again, the way in which people utilize language without having a true understanding, a deep-rooted, like almost like a belief that these things are right. Um, you know, I mentioned that I worked in an elementary school in the Southeast in SF, and one of the things that I was really working hard on my last few years there um, was actually like help like helping to implement a restorative justice lens um, in the school's disciplinary code, which seems really, really, really uh, antithetical to everything that I was just talking about. Um, and one of the things that made it mm, not work out so well is that it was very hard to get people to A, acknowledge where where their own bullshit was, right? Like what we talked about earlier in terms of like how they interpret consequence and punishment and discipline. Um, and it was hard to get people to, to prioritize, like say, say, you know, I'm going to spend X amount of time building community in my classroom and building community throughout the school. Um, right. Because it, in this content, in this context, I was actually like more talking we're trying to get folks to implement practices like circles every day. Like, you know, you can like teach in a circle. You, you don't have to teach from behind a desk. Like it's, you know, like some really basic stuff. Um, we had some really cool successes. And a lot of that I think was owed to the fact that the principal was super on board. Um, but you don't see that throughout most school districts. Most like in the Bay Area, school districts have like restorative justice practitioners somewhere, um, but definitely not enough, right? And definitely like, and, and, and that's kind of the thing. Um, I feel like there could be a way in which it's useful if we acknowledge that like A, kids have to go to school because this is just the world that we live in right now. Even as we are trying to maybe undo some of this shit, right? We have to acknowledge where we are and we have to work where we are. Um, but like, if we ain't got the resources to do it, then what's the point? Like if, if a school district is going to spend X amount of dollars on various common core curriculum, um, but they're not going to dedicate like humans and resources and all kind of, and prioritize the work of like, a, like, like utilizing restorative lens when you teach, then, then actually there's no point. Um, then actually it creates more damage. And actually what it does is, it convince, it reinforces for people that didn't really want to do the work in the first place that the work doesn't work. Um, 
And I think, and you see that a little bit too in terms of um, folks trying to utilize restorative justice in the criminal justice system. Um, because there, there are really, there have been ways in which the shit actually does turn out well and work out well. Um, and that might be a whole other episode to talk about, like, and kind of <laughs> um, really, like, sort of disentangle what works, what worked, and what didn't work, right? But, um, but then again, like, you have, like, a restorative justice, restorative justice lens in the criminal justice system that says up to a point, we will allow for a sort of restorative process. Up to a point. But like that point very rarely includes when somebody is severely physically harmed. Um, it rarely includes if somebody has been in and out of the system multiple times. Um, and, it, and because the law is the law, it very rarely includes the, um, the ability of somebody who is, you know, currently incarcerated to be able to actually reach out to the people that they've harmed without input from the state, if that makes sense. Um, and I've, I've heard all kind of legal justifications for why this is the case. Um, and sometimes it is to like, you know, uh, to protect, you know, the person who is incarcerated um, or who is, you know, on trial or, what have you, um, but often that's not the case. And so again, it's like, we have, to, we have to sort of reel it all the way back. Folks are going to co-opt this shit all over the place, right? Um, they're gonna take it, they're gonna turn it into, they're gonna try to turn it into like, here's the restorative practices curriculum by Hofton Mifflin. Um, but, folks who are doing the work or who are even invested in learning about the work, like have to really, really start with that, like internal paradigm shift from punishment to accountability, right? From you broke a rule and now I'm gonna get you to you created some harm and now we have to address it. Um, so, you know, again, I think in terms of large overarching systems, nah, like, like you're absolutely right. It's problematic and, and, and it doesn't work as a whole entire system. Yeah. Um, but that's because it's not a system, right? I would say I, I always want to lift up the work, especially since we're in the Bay Area, I always want to lift up the work of Fania Davis um, in like trying and, and Arjoy, like, you know, everybody, like, Every organization has its pitfalls. And so I'm, you know, I, I'm never like here to say everybody works at 100%. But I will say that Fania Davis has been doing this kind of work since before it had a term, right? This idea of, 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 of saying, okay, like folks are, like what we were talking about before, right? Like if, say we all of a sudden one day open up all the prisons and everybody comes home. Like, Fani Davis and Angela Davis, her sister, have like, they've been talking about this forever, actually. Like, so folks are going to come home. What are we going to do to help integrate folks back into the community and build a better community? That's not, that doesn't re rely on punishment. That doesn't rely on prison or locking people up in cages. Um, and if any of, your, any of your listeners aren't familiar with like more of the in-depth 
abolition work that both Angela and Fania Davis have done, I would really encourage them to just like take a look. Because um, again, I'm, I'm not claiming anybody's perfect, but in terms of folks who have been really, really grinding at the work um, from multiple angles, like you've got these two sisters right there who have, you know, been, been trying very, very, <laughs> very hard, good Lord. Uh, I mean, that's, that's important, right? Like it's not a, Again, this ain't a new moment. You said it's not over. You feel me? It's in terms of them not being perfect or whatever organizations not being perfect. Like you said, it's not a flawless work. It's not an overarching system where folks can just plug and play. This is, for lack of better words, dirty work. Uh, it's hard work. Mm-hmm. But the the intentions got to be there. The intentions are important. I know a lot a lot of times we talk about like intent versus impact, but I think this is one of the works where intention has to has to guide the work. It has to the principle. Right. Right. And even, you know, like, like, yes, that, that piece, right. Intention and principle, right. Like it does, it absolutely has to guide the work. And then, and, and like a true actual belief in what you're doing, I can intend to not cause harm all day. Right. But I have to also really believe at the, at the end of the day that like, that what I'm doing is, is, is part of, a greater community building and accountability, right? Thanks. Um, it goes deep, y'all. Yeah, I hope. I don't know. I feel like we, I don't know if we offered any solutions, but we for sure got to. I think we offered a lot of nuance into the conversation. Push some thinking. That's what, that's what is needed is, is nuance and imagination and really diving deep in, and thinking about the ways it shows up within ourselves first and that's right you know, how a lot of our mind all of our mind if you grew up in america you grew up with a colonized mind <laughs> like that's you yeah, know not even just in america i mean america america is an imperial project you feel me propaganda is everywhere Nigga. so you can read you can know our prisons obsolete from front to back and still got, colonized. Uh-huh. you got a colonized <laughs> mind <laughs> <laughs> Right. No, it's real. And I think, you know, I just, I was going to say, like, uh, to that idea around, like, or actually, like, to both of y'all, like, the idea around, like, not offering solutions. Um, it's also, it, it's another way, I'm going to just plug myself real quick, like, in mid-October, I'm going to do a little online workshop around restorative justice and radical vision and, like, what happens with the imagination and, and who's allowed to imagine shit and who's not. Um, and I'll, I'll let y'all know about that later, but, um, but the, the part, part of the imagination rate has, and part of the conversation that we're having has to include, um, that, that we are again, like that, that piece around like transformative justice and particularly its roots in the nineties, like where like folks were allowed to kind of make mistakes. Um, and, and it wasn't about just like, I have an answer, right? Like, like a programmatic approach to a restorative process or to transformative justice is really going to, it, it's going to say like, okay, like how, how do we go through these steps? And then what is the end result? And that's actually not the work, right? So when people ask you like, okay, so well, what, what, what's your, what's your answer? What's your, you know, what's your solution to, you know, carcerality? What's your solution to blah, blah, blah. I, I often counter with my solution is to pause and to really think about what I'm trying to do and move, move toward, 
right? My solution is not, I'm going to replace this black building with this blue building, right? That's, in, that's incredibly like Eurocentric thinking. Um, it's very like, you know, weird colonial logical thinking that doesn't actually account for the nuance that you're talking about. Um, and that's, that's just it. Like there might not, there might not be like a solution right now. And if we continue to work with these practices in mind, it's very likely that we will get to a place where we won't even have this, this problem we were trying to solve for in the first place, if that makes sense. I was saying, I think in terms of a revolution, we're going to know that it's not a one-stop shop, right? Like we're not going to, we're not going to burn down the, this current capitalist system. We're not going to burn down all the systems that support it for it to, for it to exist. And then one day it's just like, oh shit, we all free. Like, nah, it's going to be a lot of work to happen after that. Process. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of work to happen after that. Of work and more work. Like mm. revolution is always a process. Even after we quote unquote destroy the U.S. and its empire, we always going to be working towards revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you so much, Melissa. We're That's why it's important to go ahead. Just take a nap, y'all. Take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Meditate and naps. Oh. <laughs> episode title: <laughs> Meditate and naps. Nah, <laughs> that's not gonna do the do the episode, uh, justice for lack of a better word. But um, we're gonna extend into our Patreon, extend the episode. So Patreon.com/slash/HellBlackPod. Melissa, do you want to drop your website information? and your socials if you yeah. want to yeah um my website is melissa marin one word uh dot com uh and it's m-e-l-i-s-s-a-m-e-r-i-n.com um you can reach me at info at melissa marin.com uh my main source of social media is at instagram it's at decolonial structuralism one long ass word <laughs> um, on IG. I'm also on LinkedIn, Melissa Marin. You can find me there. Um, I, you know, if you find me on Twitter, let me know because I ain't been there in a minute. I don't really mess with Twitter. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, I would, I would just encourage folks come, you know, check out my website or my IG for stuff that's coming up. Because um, you know, we got work to do. And I want to help y'all do it. Appreciate you. So to tap into this next part of the episode, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash hellblackpod. Just a reminder, if you white, pay the fuck up. Don't listen to this shit for free because this labor wasn't free. So tap into our Patreon, patreon.com slash hellblackpod.